Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're revisiting some of our most memorable author conversations of the year so far. You can find the full list of author interviews on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Let us know what you're reading this summer. Now, on to the show. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Do you think about how your clothes are made? Fast fashion has made it easier than ever to get that new dress, but it comes at a cost to the environment. Lucianne Tonti is the author of Sundressed, Natural Fibers, and the Future of Fashion. Today, she'll talk about ways to slow down the fast fashion cycle. But first, we're talking pop culture. What song, movie, or TV show marked a big moment in your life and helped make you who you are today? These are questions Aisha Harris considers often. She's the co-host and critic for NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Her new book is called Wannabe, Reckonings with a Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It explores her own upbringing in Connecticut and the ways early influences shape her role today as critic. Aisha Harris joins me now. So Aisha, take us back to the beginning. How did you develop this series of essays? Were these all gems you've been sitting on as you're writing and hosting? Or did you come up with some with new concepts as you're writing them? Yeah, I mean, I think considering my background, I think all of these essays were sort of percolating in the back of my mind in some form or another before I even had the idea to write the book. Um, But it was definitely kind of through figuring out how I wanted the book to be shaped and formed. Uh, And when I decided I wanted to do a series of essays, I really sort of focused on my perspective as someone who has grown up with pop culture and has really found that it's had a profound impact on me in ways that I both had been aware of and then other ways where I kind of discovered them over time. And I wanted to sort of uh, chronicle those different various points of my life where I've had very um, sort of life-changing moments or epiphanies and also reflect how everyone can have those same experiences and similar experiences as well. Right. And I think with Americans being so focused on pop culture, I certainly can imagine, and myself included, that pop culture has had such a huge influence in my own life. And I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life unpacking that, really. And so this is a reckoning with pop culture and its influence. And your book lays out many cultural tropes shaping all of us. And you also point out how we have the ability to shape them right back. And so is this also part of what you mean by reckoning? Can you help us understand that better? Yeah, one of the essays uh, is about sort of this idea of over-personalization within popular culture. And I wanted to sort of unpack how we've gotten to a point now where it's not that people haven't always um, 
sought um, ideas around activism and and politicism within uh, arts and pop culture. But I do think we've kind of shifted to a point now where a lot of us who are consuming these things, whether it's our favorite musical artists or franchises or or move or like creators and 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 filmmakers, um, we want them to have to some extent some sort of uh, alignment with our own morals and values in a way that didn't always exist or at least not in the same way, you know, years ago. And so when I think of, you know, an artist, someone like Lizzo, who recently um, changed the lyrics of one of her songs because it used a word that some listeners found offensive, uh, in that way, in that way, you know, she was responding to her fans who were saying, like, this isn't a great word to use. It's hurtful. And she was very quick and said, oh, I'm really sorry. I And she was able to change the lyrics there. And so I think the shaping right back in many ways is that there's a sort of back and forth and conversation that is happening more and more between artists and creators and fans, um, where fans are able to sort of impart their own ideas about what they feel is right or or progressive um, onto the artists that they love. And the Spice Girls show up in the context of a larger exploration about the Black friend motif throughout history, you know, sort of from Huck Finn onwards. Can you speak to Wannabe, the title of a Spice Girls hit, of course, as your book title choice? Yeah. So, you know, so much of this book is about me sort of exploring how I tried to see myself within pop culture and the idea of wanting to be something else or wanting to look like someone else. Um, you know, the first chapter is about the, the like my name. I have another chapter about how I've seen um, looked at this idea of masculinity and me wanting to be closer to this idea uh, of masculinity uh, and and sort of reject my being a girl and and girlhood and this idea about power. And um, so I, I want to be a sort of it's twofold. It's yes, it is the Spice Girls. And I reference them directly, um, especially Scary Spice as being like the black friend and me being often the Black friend uh, amongst my friends when I was growing up. Um, and a lot of my friends were white or, or not Black. Um, but it's also about what we want to be and what we want our art and our culture to be. Um, and so it has, a, it has a little bit of a double meaning there um, in, in terms of just these ideas around um, desire and uh, self-image. And I, I feel like that really would resonate with a lot of people because what you're speaking of, I know it's a very specific example, but I'm also wondering, is that a universal experience? Now, are you are you hearing from your readers or just maybe friends and colleagues that you've had these conversations with? You know, how has their responses been in terms of motifs like this? Because this is not a new theme, right? But I feel like we're talking about this more out in the open. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's it's so interesting to to hear from people who are now reading it or, or listening to it, and it's uh, I've I've had people say you know like even though their name wasn't the same as mine, they've had similar experiences of of people uh, trying to relate to their name via pop culture references. Um, <laughs> there's one person who said that their name was Adrian, but it's spelled Adrian, and they're like, I went my whole life with people just yelling at me, Yo, Adrian, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> those those types of like 
experiences can be so frustrating and universal in many ways, regardless of our, our background. Um, it's also just been interesting to hear from people who have had similar experiences of, of, of how they saw themselves as young girls and, and wanting to be, uh, also wanting to sort of, uh, display these, um, ideas and and ideas that are very, you know, reductive. But when you're a kid, you don't know better um, about, you know, sexuality and and um, gender identity. And so, yeah, it's been really, really fun to see and hear from people who, uh, even if they don't specifically relate to every single thing, they understand the sentiments and can relate um, in, in uh, you know, broader ways as well. Yeah, and I, I think the relatability certainly uh, rang for me because as I was reading it, the first chapter, like you mentioned, it's about your name. I was having my own sort of reflection of, oh, like when people hear my name, they expect me to look a certain way. And when I don't reflect what they thought I should look like, they're very surprised. And so mm. that really, um, it, that part did resonate with me. And, and it, I just started to think of all the examples, which is that is a whole different show in of itself. So, but I think you know you having you, you sort of expressing your own personal experiences. I feel like it's a major thread, and I think it's it's a very makes it very compelling to read, at least for me. And I know the New York Times observed that the essays are also part of a cultural analysis and also part memoir. So, what was it like to be working through not just pop culture nostalgia, which is so powerful in of itself, but also with your own upbringing and experience in Connecticut within that context? Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't, there was no way for me to write this from a personal standpoint without really reflecting on my earliest years and, and you know, living in uh, a predominantly, or not, yeah, living and, and existing within a predominantly white uh, community as I was growing up. It really did have a profound impact on me. And I think that it's uh it was important to me to sort of capture those moments and i don't look back on them um as bad times but i did realize how in some ways they did have negative long lasting impact on me that i had to sort of go back and unpack as i was writing this this book um and there were sort of realizations that you know there were things that i was not ready to accept about what it means to be black and what it means to be a young girl at those times um that pop culture really helped me figure out um and so you know the black best the black friend trope for me writing about that was a way to explore how I played my own part in sort of living out this idea of the Black friend, which in popular culture is often just sort of like a sidekick who uh, is there to support the white protagonist. And I wanted to explore how I made myself often feel that way in my real life scenarios of being a Black friend amongst mostly white people. And with what you just mentioned and how, you know, as an adult, it's an, the unpacking process. I feel like it's an ongoing process. So, do you do you feel like is it a good thing or a bad thing that you're having this experience now? And I know you mentioned that you know your childhood experiences. You're not saying that it's bad, but now you're like, oh, maybe those things were they were problems. And as an adult, as you're trying to work through it, you know, what goes through your mind when that happens? Are you surprised or do you feel relieved that you're having this moment of sort of oh, that makes sense now? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a relief. And I, at some point, I also kind of realized, and I 
think this is also a sort of common thread throughout the book is that this is an ongoing process, even though the book is done, it's in in a sense, it's done and it's out there in the world. Um, it's something I'm going to continue to wrestle with. And I think it's important for me to really uh, be able to accept the fact that this is uh, an ongoing process. And, you know, who a few years from now, I might have written this book completely differently than the way it has come out now. But I think that's part of what I love about being alive and and being a critic and and being able to like really continue that journey of um figuring out how things have affected me and uh, you know uh, one of the quotes i have in there is from Roger Ebert where he's talking about how you know we come to movies uh, at different points in our lives and it, it's always going to be a different experience because we're at a different points in our lives like movies stay the same but people change and I think that um, what I hope people get out of this book, one of the things I hope people get out of this book is that they should not be afraid of, of changing their minds or, 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 or being able to sort of um, evolve in their understanding of how pop culture um, shaped them and is still shaping them. I really love what you just said, and I really vibe with the Ebert quote because I remember reading it for the first time, and I kind of linked it to my experience with rereading books. I certainly have those experiences with movies too, but I'm a huge reader, mm -hmm. and I do find myself that, oh, when I reread something, I mean, just like Sherlock Holmes, for example, me reading it as an eight-year-old is very different when I'm 28 versus when I'm in my 30s. So I I love that sentiment a lot. and. We, you also dig into the origins of nostalgia and how that exploded into something that could be unhealthy nowadays, like the Disney remakes and Sex and the City and even McDonald's, Happy Meals for Adults, as examples. You know, those are all very pivotal elements of, of upbringing during the 90s and the early 2000s. Do you think this nostalgia kick, as you called it, is accelerating? It's certainly not a new concept. Yeah, I mean, nostalgia goes, you know, hundreds of years back and the idea of nostalgia, but obviously the sort of modern day version is a little bit more recent. Um, I definitely think that we've seen an uptick in, and everyone notices it, the fact that most of the movies now in the last few years in the top 10 of the box office at the theaters have been franchises based on original intellectual property, um, reboots, sequels. It it, it is uh, this is how studios have been able to get butts and seats in theaters, and then TV has been the same way. Um, and and it does it. It's one of my bigger <laughs> concerns about the state of art and and pop culture is how much the studios and and companies are relying upon nostalgia and the fact that. It's just nostalgia is a natural thing. I, I don't think it's something that any of us can avoid. I certainly feel nostalgic about certain things, but I also believe in endings and I believe that we shouldn't be afraid of things ending and things ending, um, you know, before they are just completely, <laughs> completely uh, useless or or bad or or descended into the worst versions of themselves. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to explore was like, why are we so afraid of endings? And 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 why do we uh, keep going back to the same well um, every year and in, in every season? Well, this is the perfect segue to an expert that you are going to be reading for us. Uh, the chapter is called This Is It ne Never Ends. 
Yes, uh, this is the IP. The that IP. I will, you know what? I was wondering about yeah. that, and I figured you will let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, IP stands for intellectual property. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yes, here, yeah. So yeah, um, go ahead. It's summer. I'm 31. I'm in a multiplex in Times Square, surrounded by movie journalists. Is this real life? Is this fantasy? I don't know, but it is almost certainly Circle of Life dubbed over an episode of Planet Earth. The golden sun swirls upward. The elephants, rhinos, and giraffes make their way to Pride Rock exactly as they always have. They do exactly what I expect them to do, appear at the exact moments as I expect. Except they're no longer lushly animated, but photorealistically designed to such an extreme that I'm having flashbacks to the three-day Kenyan safari I went on five years earlier. It's so weird. I've seen this millions of times before, but not quite like this. It's a mishmash of feelings and moments I've accumulated over 25 years, mined and regurgitated back to me by a corporate entity, Disney, with which I've had a lifelong love-hate relationship. It feels surreal, as though it'll never leave me, but will only keep morphing into something altered. That sensation of amazement and wonder I first felt in that theater in 1994, and my recollection of what it was like to be a kid at that time still remains, and that's what I cling to as I watch this warped imitation of the original. Is this what nostalgia is supposed to feel like? This was, of course, about The Lion King. You're listening to Aisha Harris. She co-hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. After a quick break, we'll continue discussing her new book called Wannabe, Reckonings with a Pop Culture That Shapes Me. How has pop culture shaped who you are? You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us is Aisha Harris. She's the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and she's out with a new book called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And for our listeners, what elements of pop culture have had an impact on you? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Aisha, we were just talking about nostalgia and sort of your personal stories when it comes to talking about pop culture in both your personal life and your professional life. And you also kind of talk about a conflation of taste and identity, especially on social media culture, where fandoms come together and team and they may struggle over from over affiliation. Can you help us understand that better? 
Yeah. I mean, look, fandom and rabid fandom has existed for very long, a uh, very long time before you or I were even born. Uh, but I think that social media has really exacerbated the the uh, that personality trait in ways that are both good and bad. I think there is uh, something really comforting and nice about the fact that now people can uh nerds are not so much uh, a thing anymore at least nerds are nerddom is something to be celebrated so people can get really into something that they love um and do a lot of that online and connect with people who they might not normally interact with and find community in ways that are very healthy um i think of you know tumblr and how so many people have been able to really just geek out over various things uh but then you have people who are a little bit more on the scary side of things. And the fact that Stan is now something that a lot of people aspire to, Standom is something that people aspire to. And for those who may have forgotten or may not be familiar with the, the word Stan, the phrase Stan, it's, it means uh, a very overzealous fan of uh, a person or a thing. And it it's kind of traced back to the Eminem song Stan, which is about a violent fan uh, of of. Eminem who commits murder um, and in in the name in many ways of fandom. And so the fact that it's gone from having this very negative connotation to now being something that people like are very proud to be and the way that plays out in terms of interacting with other fans online. And sometimes it gets really personal, attacking people, doxing them uh, for saying negative things about their their favorite artists. Um, it's really kind of scary to think about. And I wanted to sort of tease out in the book why this is the case and, and how maybe we can learn to be a little bit uh, less uh, overt and a little bit nicer to people <laughs> about the things that they like and the things that they don't like. Well, it, I think it really reflects to what we were talking about earlier, too, where the idea of fandom, maybe the maybe the name is more contemporary, but certainly not not a new thing because I mentioned I love Sherlock Holmes. I'm obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. And I love that you mentioned Tumblr because during the BBC sort of peak Sherlock series fandomism, I was on Tumblr and I saw both the great connections a fan and I call it nerd chic by the way us uh, nerd chic <laughs> <laughs> you know you find your fellow fans and it's a, it's such a fun time right and but then you also see the other side of things which as you mentioned it could get really ugly and I, and I saw that and it, I think it just surprised me as a younger fan you know realizing that wow like this is very pervasive and you know not very different from the Victorian times really when when Sherlock Holmes was very popular but it just really shows how universal we are and I think that's a thesis that we can definitely come back to another day, but it just reflects to what you're saying. And also, you, you mentioned the book that you want more than to operate strictly from a scarcity mindset when it comes to reviewing Black art. Can you talk more about the idea of a scarcity mindset? And is that something that's uniquely American, or, or is that something that is more universal? Uh, you know, I, I think it's something that is universal in many ways for anyone who feels as though they are not accurately or um, typically represented within pop culture. Um, and the scarcity mindset is really this idea that um, it, and, and it comes from a real place that there you're not 
uh, seen within popular culture um, enough or in ways that are, you know, um, feel representational to you. And so when that is the case, anything that comes along that does feature you prominently. So I think of, you know, something like Black Panther, which was such a moment for for representation of Black people in a sci-fi fantasy world um, and and, in such a big scale. You can understand why people are so excited and excited for anything that comes along that feels new and different and, and exciting. But it's not always uh, it's not always a good thing. And I think that especially now we have so many uh, I, I write about it from the perception of, of, of black art. And I, I think we have now so many filmmakers and creators who are doing really interesting things and on a big scale, whether it is Black Panther, Get Out, uh, Jordan Peele, Barry Jenkins, um, Ava DuVernay. We have so many people doing really amazing things. So I feel as though we have more options now and don't have to necessarily operate from a scarcity mindset anymore, which means that if for the things that don't feel uh, that the movies or TV shows or music that comes out, I don't feel like I have to treat it like it's the only thing we're going to get for the next five years. And if I don't like it or if I don't think it's necessarily rising to the occasion in terms of it as a piece of art, I feel as though we should be able to criticize it and critique it in that way, because to treat it as anything less is actually to do a disservice to that art. Um, I don't think that Black art should be treated with kids' gloves. I think that it should be wrestled with rigorously, and that's how you respect Black art. Um, so that's it's been interesting to see that play out, especially um, I recently reviewed The New Little Mermaid negatively at NPR. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of people who were upset with me because they they felt as though I was, um, because this was a Black princess, uh, we should be happy about this um, and ignore the fact that maybe the movie itself is not the greatest. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting to see how it's, it's still continuing and playing out even after the book for me has been written and, and finished. I, I kind of take it a little bit further back and I look at the, the 60s and the 70s um, and when it was a time of both uh, emerging Black filmmaking and artists, uh, including people like Gordon Parks, who uh, directed Shaft, um, and movies like Superfly from the black exploitation era. And also just the idea of someone like Sidney Poitier, who, while he was a huge box office star, um, he was criticized by some Black critics and, and Black observers for taking the kind of roles that were they might have been dignified, but they also felt as though they kind of neutered him as a character. And, and he was playing these sort of um, upstanding characters who didn't have any real um, personality and oomph. And I I recognize that that was, you know, it was that was a time when people were sort of clinging for anything, any kind of representation they could have because there were so few examples. Um, but now that we have more like in the wake of Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte in that entire era, we have so many more black filmmakers and creators working in this medium and being able to do so on a very large scale. And I think that um, we, because of that, we have more space to be able to uh, recognize that there is going to be some great 
art that emerges from that. And then there's going to be some not so great art that emerges from that. And I think like Black critics are in a really interesting space right now um, because we want to be able to do that and say those things. But sometimes we can be accused by other readers of our work, including Black people, of um, not uh, not supporting that art and not being uh kind to that art. And I think it's 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 a tough balance to strike between um your, you know, your identity as a black person and your identity as a critic. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the identity portion of being a critic or even just being, you know, anyone in general, but the idea you, we were just talking about you know, these uh, the art being scarce, and you also wrote about how limiting also that it can be to constantly evaluate movies, shows, or music as if I've got a sheet of paper on a clipboard holding representation boxes that need to be checked off in column A, which represents positive, or column B, which represents negative. This is a big part of that, right? And you mentioned balance too. You know, how do you balance that? Yeah, I, it's it's still an ongoing process, I think. And I've when I first started in my career, I definitely tended to lean towards: is this positive? Is this negative? Um, you know, I, I one of the first movies that I wrote about uh, uh, professionally was about the movie Precious from two thousand nine, and and that movie is a very dark, disturbing movie about a young girl who comes from a very troubled home. Um, and and it's just really depressing. And I remember thinking, oh, this movie is it's just bad for black people. It's it's not making any of us look good. And, you know, I haven't actually gone back and rewatched it recently. But I do think that um, for me, at least as a critic, I don't want to just talk about necessarily why something might be quote unquote bad representation. But I also want to talk about like the actual aesthetics of the film, how those aesthetics are working and operating. Um, do they work for me? Do I still find it entertaining even if I do have problems with it? And I think that trying to find that balance um, is, is really crucial to being a good critic um, because to do otherwise is to be reductive. And I, I think that there's no such thing as something that is just all bad or all good. I think that there's always going to be uh, a, a mixture and in, in, in a, uh, a, a, a combination of all those things that you just kind of have to suss out for yourself. Right. And and I think what you just said, it, first of all, it's very complicated, right? And and I, I really like that you you talked about how like there's really no you know bad representation or good representation. It's not that simple. Um, why do you think we get hung up on that? Do you think it's because this is the idea that representation is not enough? So we need more positive representation of a certain community because of the way the media has portrayed them. But at the same time, we should also be in a space where, well, people are smart enough to be able to sort of suss it out. But as you say, it is a balance and we are in a very interesting space right now. Yeah, I I, I, I do think that there are a lot of people who still feel that what we have now is not enough. And I'm not saying that it necessarily is enough, but I, I try to encourage people to, um, especially when talking about um, something like the Little Mermaid, the new Little Mermaid, um, to really think about, you know, 
are we really in a, a place now where black girls and black kids don't have representation because they do uh you know i think of a different franchise which actually i think is really great which is spider-man across the universe we have miles morales as an afro latino spider-man and that's that's representation there's other children's tv shows that um star black kids uh, including something like doc mcstuffins i know that i think that went off the air a little while ago but you can still watch it so i think when we i i see this often happening where and this happens across the board i think not just with black people but with lots of demographics where they'll say like we don't have this kind of representation and then they're ignoring or maybe they just like don't realize that there is representation and i think that to pretend that that doesn't exist is in itself a problem um because then you're just kind of erasing history and like erasing the fact that these things do exist and have always existed it's just sometimes you have to look a little bit harder to find them right absolutely i mean i i i still find myself in in situations or conversations where i'm like oh i didn't know that happened so many years ago and you know someone started to pave the way and now we're just kind of starting to to dig into that history and we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier but I mentioned that Wannabe is such a, a thoughtful and enjoyable read. I love your voice in it. I mean, this conversation reflects that, I hope, <laughs> a little bit. But, you know, Aisha, what do you hope readers take away from, from Wannabe? I hope that um, people realize that pop culture is very important. I think there's a, a way in which pop culture is often sort of cast aside, seen as um, frivolous or, you know, counter-programming from the real, quote-unquote, the real things that are going on in the world. And while I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, like, it's as immediate and urgent as, you know, whatever is happening with, you know, student loan debt or trans rights. And like, that's not, you know, it's not quite on that same level. But I also think you can't ever separate these things because they're always working in tandem together. It's affecting us in ways that we might not always see um, and that affect the way we see each other and how we also see other people. Um, and I think that, you know, pop culture is very important and it's often colliding with politics. If it wasn't, then, you know, we wouldn't have uh, certain politicians trying to ban books or, or ban drag shows. Um, it's, it's always, pop culture is always something that is working on us in so many ways, both political and personal. And I hope that this is uh, the kind of book that will help people think about that a bit more and, and really engage with it on a serious level in ways they perhaps have not done in the past. And do you think with the pervasiveness of pop culture, is it, is it a good way for us to learn about our own history or even learn about culture beyond the, beyond the pop? Does that make sense? Like, is this a way for people? Yeah. yeah. yeah does, it's not just for us in terms of American pop culture, but I think a lot of our international friends learn about America from the pop culture that you're just talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly partially why I've I've made this a part of my career was, you know, when I was in high school and, and, and in college, I became a lover of movies, especially old movies. And I used those movies as tools for me to learn more about the times in which they were made. And so I was very nerdy about it. I would read books. I'd, I'd read biographies. I'd, I'd read history books and books that included 
incorporated both film and TV into them. Um, and I think that it's such a great way. I think it's a great launching pad for discovering uh, things about the past and also things about other cultures that you might not know about. Um, I think the part one crucial component of that is not just watching or consuming those things, but also then reading about them afterwards and reading a variety of perspectives about them afterwards. Um, and I realize not everyone is going to do that. Uh, but I do think for me, at least that's been part of how I've learned so much about other cultures and about other times and, and generations is in part through the art that I've consumed because that art does reflect the times and the people who are making them. That was Aisha Harris, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Hour and author of Wannabe, Reckonings with a Pop Culture That Shapes Me. You can find more information about her book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. We've got to take a short break. Coming up, we hear from Lucianne Tonti, author of Sundressed, Natural Fibers and the Future of Fashion. This is Where We Live. Stay with us. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're revisiting some of our most memorable author conversations today. Lucy Antonti is the author of Sundressed, Natural Fibers, and the Future of Fashion. We had her on the show to talk about the impact of fast fashion and what clothing manufacturers can do to build sustainability. When she was on the program earlier in the year, I asked her about her love of clothes and working with textiles. It's important that people understand that only at the moment, less than 1% of our clothes are actually recycled. So with that stat where you mentioned 80% of garments are being sent away, they're not, um, we don't have the infrastructure and the capacity at the moment to take those garments and turn them back into new textiles. So when you're buying something, um, you've really got to keep in mind (laughs) the impact that that's going to have on the planet. Um, And in terms of fast fashion, I think the definition really needs to account for how many thousands and thousands of units these companies are able to put online and into their stores every week. So that's the change we've seen in the last 20 years when free trade came through. Now these companies are able to literally manufacture tens of thousands of goods a week and to distribute them online. So that wasn't the case before we opened up manufacturing to other parts of the world, but it certainly is the case now, so much so that we consume 60% more clothes now than we did in the year 2000. And that consumption is accelerating. So by the year 2030, we'll be consuming 60% more than we are now. So it's an enormous amount of of goods. (laughs) But to your question, (laughs) sorry to go off track already. No, we love it. Um, To your question, so my love of clothes, like, you know, I've worked in fashion since I was 17. um, And as I kind of you know, made my way up through the industry. I started working for fast fashion brands. And then over time, you know, by the time I was in my early 20s, I was working for um, a high-end designer in Australia that um, worked predominantly with natural fibers and manufactured locally. And that really um, put me on a different track in the way I was kind of thinking about clothes. By the time I, I, I lived in London and then by the time I got to Paris, I was working Um, exclusively for um, designers who only worked with natural fibers and really what the quality of the garments that they were producing was so beautiful. Um, It really, um, and they were so militant about not having any synthetics because, um, you know, 
I, I say this a lot, so I feel like everyone should know it by now, but I know it's not common knowledge. Polyester, nylon, these are plastics. These are common plastics that are derived from fossil fuels. And so when you um, are thinking about your garments, uh, at the moment, we know that polyester makes up, synthetics make up over 52% of all the fibres produced. Um, and that is, you know, polyester is really hard to recycle. As I said, less than 1% of our clothes are recycled. And that doesn't biodegrade. So when that sits in landfill, that um, it'll sit in landfill for hundreds of years. So what we, with natural fibers, we have uh, so many wonderful benefits. Not only are they more beautiful to wear, but they also will biodegrade and return to um, the earth at the end of their life, depending on how they're disposed of. But we also have these fabulous opportunities with the way that they're grown because um, they come from the soil. So, you know, whether it's wool or cotton or or linen, um, hemp, silk, even all of these garments, when if we change the way that we farm them and if we move off an industrial farming system, these fibres have the capacity to regenerate landscapes. And that's um, that's kind of where I've gotten to now on this kind of journey where it's looking for the most beautiful clothes that have also these wonderful benefits for the planet. Well, and beautiful clothes also mean, you know, how we treat it and how it makes us feel. You know, a lot of us, we, you know, we wear our clothes to feel good or maybe it holds memories and make us feel a certain way. Can you talk about the emotional weight that we put on our clothes? You know, not just something like a, a wedding dress, but even how a sweater can be attached to a memory. And I think in your book, you talked about your favorite black dress. Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is a really important part of the consumption piece because we need to reduce our consumption if we're going to have um, changed the carbon footprint of the fashion industry. So, uh, you know, our clothes are, I just, are, are like our most intimate companions. You know, they come with us everywhere. They're next to our skin. They um, they can change the way we feel, not just physically by keeping us warm or, or you know, letting us breathe if if um if it's too hot outside, but also the way that we feel, how confident we feel, how comfortable we are when we're like walking into it, you know, um, an exciting situation, a tricky situation, a nerve wracking situation. They have a a really powerful um, ability to you know, to kind of carry us through these different challenging events of our, in our lives. And I think that those, you know, when I think about the garments that I've, that I love and that I, that I cherish, it's garments that function in two ways for me. They make me feel, you know, beautiful and they also are comfortable. And so there's a confidence element to um, my experience of wearing them that makes them, you know, makes me feel like they're my friends and I want them to. And I, I think when we start, when we change the way we think about our clothes and start to view them as these kind of friends that we need to take care of that will then take care of us, we start to value them more. We, we keep them for longer. You know, we'll take them to get repaired. We'll make sure they go to the dry cleaners. You know, we'll, we'll sew that button back on if it falls off. And all of those things um, feed into uh, having a wardrobe that, you know, is functional, that you feel good in, that you're excited to wear every morning and that you're not kind of constantly seeking out that new purchase, um, that new kind of dopamine hit because, you know, you're, you're kind of viewing them every purchase as something that needs to carry you through um, 
years and years and years. So it's not going to be something you take lightly. I love that idea of viewing your clothing as friends. I'm not sure if I've heard that before. So this is a life changing moment, <laughs> Lucien. <laughs> and you know, and and talking about that, it's it's uh, you know we've been talking about where you can find your clothes. Um, can you talk about also the challenge of finding quality, sustainable clothing? Because as we mentioned earlier, lots of brands can be at a higher price point with limited quantities and. Um, when everything is so available through fast fashion, you know, there's a reason why we gravitate towards that. Can you talk about your thoughts on that? Yeah. So look, it's a few things and it's a tricky area, especially when we're in a cost of living crisis and the prices of everything are going up. Um, but our clothes should be more expensive than we're used to them being. Like, unfortunately, what's happened with fast fashion is, uh, and the last, you know, two or three decades, as Mariah mentioned, of um, accelerated cheap clothing is that we've become conditioned to think that a t-shirt can can cost ten dollars and there's and that's okay when the true cost of a t-shirt is really a lot more than that because of how precious the materials are when they're coming out of the ground the time and the labor and the creativity that goes into producing um that, that garment and then you know you've got to factor in everything else, the, the cost of the retail, the cost of the, you know, manufacturing website, all of the things. So um, it's I really uh, an important piece of this is understanding that uh, it's we've got to a monetary investment in something of higher quality that you'll keep for a long time is something worthwhile. You know, <clears throat> I use the example of a fridge a lot. I like you wouldn't want to buy a new fridge every six months because you bought a cheap one <laughs> and it needed to be replaced. That would be so annoying, right? Our clothes, we need to view in the same way. Like we we don't want to be, um, when you buy the cheap t-shirt and then because it's made of polyester, because as I said, it's made of plastic, um, polyester has a complicated relationship with sweat and with oil. Um, because it comes from oil, it'll bond when it can't, when it comes into contact with those two things, which means that it will hold on to your body odor and you'll know everyone that's worn polyester knows that, you know, is to be true, but it will also hold on to stains. And those are two things very quickly that mean you don't want to wear that garment. You don't want to wear something that stinks <laughs> and you don't want to wear something that looks dirty. And then of course, what are you doing? You're reaching for the next cheap thing. So when we're in that kind of cycle of consumption, I actually believe not only are we feeling extremely dissatisfied with our wardrobes and overwhelmed because we're looking at kind of mountains of things that we've purchased that we can't wear and there's a lot of complicated emotions, regret, guilt, shame <laughs> tied up in, in that kind of scenario and then and frustration because you're like, I don't have anything to wear. And then the second thing is... Um, you end up spending more money, <laughs> but, but but you're feeling dissatisfied. So if we slow down and save up <laughs> for pieces that we really want, that we've really considered that are higher quality, that we are investing in for the long term, that's when um, we can kind of shift those patterns of consumption and kind of turn back the wheel a little bit and get off this kind of notion of like, one more new thing, the next new thing. Oh, now it's, you know, it smells and it's and it's got a stain on it and I need something else. Like, um, and really start to view our clothes as a, a kind of different avenue for investing, just as we would with anything else in our lives. You know, we can we take such a long time to make a purchase, a bigger purchase, like 
uh, an appliance, a car, you know, all these things. And uh, obviously, I'm not expecting you to spend what you would spend on a car on your clothes, but it's that kind of thinking where you do your research, you want to buy the some a high quality thing that won't have to be repaired every, you know, every so often. You want it to stand the test of time. You want it to hold its value so you can resell it potentially. Um, and it's undoing the kind of patterns of um, consumption that we've all been, we've all adopted now with fast fashion. And I think it's important to keep in mind, two decades is not that long. We can unlearn these habits, absolutely, but it will take a little bit of resistance and some kind of cognitive behavioural <laughs> tricks as well. That was Lucianne Tonti, author of Sundressed, Natural Fibers and the Future of Fashion. She is one of many author talks we're revisiting this week. You can find the full list of authors and their works on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. To listen back to all of your favorite Where We Live conversations, download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible and Katie Pellico. And thank you so much for listening.